Hey, this is Melissa Green, and you are listening to Grace Point Church's podcast. Our vision statement at Grace Point is loving God, loving self, and loving others. If you want to find out more, visit gracepoint.net. So in this fourth week of Lent, we will be continuing on to talk about exits, specifically today, how we exit our youth, our health, and dare I say, exit perhaps this earth someday. So let's start with the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And I wonder if you'll notice which word I'm going to emphasize as I read this verse. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What makes you feel new? The other day I was using my wheelchair at the big Hobby Lobby in Franklin. I was tired and hurting a little bit. I've observed a lot of different reactions to my chair, or more specifically, to me when I'm in my chair. Now, invariably, I get a lot of respect, but there's a big difference between how adults pay attention to me versus children. Adults will typically either look past me or be very polite and say, excuse me, and walk around. But children, oh my gosh, they're so brave, they're so honest. That day at the Hobby Lobby, this beautiful little girl, about four years old, big brown eyes, red sparkly ruby slipper shoes came up to me close and she leaned in and she said, honey, what happened to you? (laughs) And I thought, is this a teachable moment? No. She just wanted to know what happened to me. And so I said to her that I was just a little tired today, but I was so happy to meet her. But she wanted more. She got even closer. She put her hand on my knee and she said, do you hurt? And I nodded. And she patted my knee and she said, there, there. Such compassion, such innocence. When Jesus said, I tell you, unless you change and become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I think, oh, thy kingdom come on earth now that we would become more and more like children. Because in the innocence of her childhood, she had compassion for me. She didn't overlook me. She didn't look down on me. She didn't tell me what I needed to do and how to fix myself. She just received me and gave me God's language of compassion, and I felt better. I didn't have to explain myself to her. I didn't have to defend myself to her. I wasn't any different from her in that moment. We were united in this beautiful moment of compassion. David wrote in the 86th Psalm, I will call out to you, you, Lord, are compassionate and gracious God. David such a survivor. I've always been fascinated by survival stories. I mean, aren't we all? We tune in every night to watch survival stories of people surviving competitions for cooking and dancing and cross-country races. We've watched 18 seasons of survivor episodes. Gilligan's Island is still on syndication and TV land. We watch as these real lives show us how and how not to survive their pain. 
We are so drawn into survivor stories because we are all surviving something. There's Oscar-winning movies like Schindler's List and now 12 Days a Slave that are survivor stories. And we watch them both mesmerized and horrified as we see real and actual people survive everything from zombies to aliens to natural disasters and pain, sickness, and dying. Even seasonal favorites like the Ten Commandments and The Sound of Music are survival stories of some kind. We watch them because we are all dying from the moment we are living. But what's the point of having this survival instinct that we're born with when we know that we are here but for a moment in eternity? We know that these bodies are not our final resting place. So why were we created with this survival instinct? Pain is illustrated in every book of the Bible. And yet, to some extent, we're a little uncomfortable, even surprised, when it shows up in our life. I understand being angry, but not surprised. There's pain in every book of the Bible. I wonder if we as Americans think that we are entitled to not just better incomes and better houses, but maybe even a better physical existence, better than our parents and grandparents, because, come on, this is the 21st century. It's true, we have a lot of examples of healing in the Bible. From Exodus, we read, Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from you. All the way through to the New Testament, the good news and the gospel. In Matthew, we read that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And yet, there's example after example of growing old, eyesight failing, Moses' slower speech, Paul lived with a physical thorn in his side. And you know, through hundreds of years of slavery, and then following Christ, there was so much pain. Do we keep track of the difference and the counts between healing and suffering? How many people were brought back to life and how many people were sent to their death? Do we keep track? Do we focus on the healings? Of course we do. I have focused a little bit on the suffering. This is my work. And I don't focus so much on the why, but on the what now. In America, more than 60% of our population has at least one chronic illness, and many of them are so painful. And if you are young and healthy, chances are you are taking care of someone who is not. Chronic pain, suffering affects us all, and we are all getting old. Katie, can you imagine your four-month-old getting old day by day? I want you to listen to the difference in these two statements. I've survived. I am surviving. See the difference? I have survived says the threat is over. I am surviving says it's still there. And just like surviving an earthquake, you worry about the aftershocks and worse yet, the uncertainty if it will come again. I take issue with obituary writers. When my husband's precious mother died, the obituary copy read, Sophia Lickie died, survived by her loving husband, Edwin. He may have survived her death, but he had to survive, and he was surviving her loss every single day. We are surviving, and we have to survive and are surviving the pain and suffering of others. 
As a researcher in this field, I'm particularly interested in how we have rewritten and how we retell the rules for growing old and surviving pain and illness. Because how we think about it and how we act on it sets us on this pathway we embark on, we stay on, until we decide that we no longer want to or are able to. And the seesaw activity, it spurs us forward and it draws us back. Sometimes we live in this revolving, twisting journey. Sometimes our survival is an accident. Fortuitous seems like chance. But from the moment we take our first breath, our most basic physical and psychological mechanism is to live. The very first recorded act of God was to create life, right? The first book, Genesis, uses the word, let there be, over and over, again and again, until finally, let there be man, male and female, and let them be fruitful and multiply. This act of life and bringing creation into the world is blessed. The second chapter of Genesis says, God made this work of creation holy. I'm sure the reason that I am so in awe of life is because I've known dying. It's changed me. It is changing me. I have memories of surviving pain that are so simple and some that are inexplicable. There are events that urge me to believe that I must remain here on earth. And I wonder if, like me, sometimes those memories, they question the why and the why not. Because the promise of surviving isn't always a painless existence. I know a lot of you might have memories of pain, surgeries, illness. Richard, you probably have a roadmap of surgical scars. We have bruises. And these memories, they conjure up feelings of what it's like to exist in this world. And it's not just our physical bruises and scars, it's those voices in our head where doctors and counselors and our caregivers, they say, do you understand what I just told you? And I say, I understand, I don't understand. There's clear moments that I recall with my rational mind, but I've learned that we store them in our physical body too. And that's why our muscles twitch and our skin chills when there's sights and sounds that trigger our survival instinct. There's always this question of why and why not. Every night, my father, who lives in a very painful body, he says, Chrissy, every night I go to bed and I think, maybe tonight, maybe tonight I will wake up in heaven out of this painful body. He doesn't want to talk to doctors anymore. He doesn't want to be on the other end of that automated recorded voice with Walgreens. He wants comfort. And then he says, I wake up and I sigh with both gratitude and the gravity of what it's like to live in this painful body. With the beauty of survival can come the beast of existence. Because it's not just our physical aches and pains of illness that we endure. There's so much more to our suffering. Whether you have a long-term illness or a sports injury or you're just getting old, there's more that comes with it than just the functional loss. There's this cascade of ongoing emotional losses. There's new loss every family gathering for my friend Laura when she realizes she can't celebrate the holidays and cookie exchanges the way she used to. 
There was new loss for my friend John suffering with MS. As every Saturday, he gives up a little bit more of his golf game. And if you can't kick that field goal or drive that truck and you lose your job, you haven't just lost your job, you've lost your identity, your security, maybe some relationships. If you have to take care of a little girl or a little boy or an elderly parent 24-7, you lose a little bit more of your freedom every day. Even losing your eyesight of those six-pack abs means that you're losing a little bit of your ego. We even lose casual conversation. Words like neuropathy, embolism, stenosis work their way into everyday conversations. So there's a secret to this burden and the success of coping with long-term pain, getting old, and facing dying. As Stan said, you have to continually adjust to how you do life, but more important, how you be in life. Patty has arthritis, and initially she just lost some physical function. But then in her 60s, she couldn't play with her grandchildren anymore, couldn't lift them up. So she wasn't just adjusting to that physical immobility. She had to adjust to how was she going to enjoy her grandchildren now. And then in her 70s, she had to give up her family home because she couldn't climb the stairs anymore. The loss, again, wasn't in her lack of mobility. It was the loss of the life she thought she was going to have. And these losses, they keep showing up like waves in the ocean. No clear beginning, no clear ending, sometimes pulling us under or carrying us away. So what makes these adjustments feel more like a success and less like a loss? You have to know what you're adjusting to. It's not the lack of mobility. You can compensate for that. It's all those unclear things that you're losing. Because unless you understand what you're really adjusting to, what you're really giving up, you can't begin to do the grief work to help you go on. And then your endings, well, it's just the end instead of the beginning. Physical is so interwoven with emotional. That connection is unavoidably interwoven. We're not aware of it all the time. We can't explain it. But the one thing that is true is that long-term suffering, physical pain, even growing old, it points to something that we've lost. And we have to readjust to that. You may not have lost the actual life of someone, but many of us here, we're losing the life that we thought we were going to have. I like my life, but this is not the life I thought I was going to have. I adjusted. See, that's the difference between these tangible, visible things that we lose and these unclear subsequent losses. They're not so visible, but they're just as devastating. When your pain prevents you from playing ball with your son, it's more than just losing the ball game. You lose a little bit of your, your dream, your pride, your ego. When you lose your balance from, neuro, from diabetic neuropathy, you're actually losing a sense of your safety too. And these are hard losses, and they're filled with unpredictability. Of all the adjusting that we have to do, the one that was named the most difficult is living in uncertainty, not knowing what's going to come next. Listen to this. The deluge of that uncertainty is just as debilitating as the actual condition that you live with. 
That's why the person who had cancer is still anxious, wondering if it's going to reoccur. That's why someone who just had open-heart surgery or maybe a heart attack 20 years ago still worries if it happened then, could it happen again? See, it's not even the condition anymore that is debilitating. It's the worry. It's the unpredictability. In our society, well, we like to fix things. We don't like uncertainty. We don't do a good job of living with the kind of problems that won't go away. Our goal is to eliminate them, especially health problems. Come on, look at the technology we have right now. We say, you've got to get over it. It's not that bad. At least you're still alive. And people don't realize that yesterday's crisis lives on differently, but just as powerfully. There's such a tremendous need for spiritual guidance through those kinds of losses. Because doctors can explain things physically, but medical doctors and psychological doctors and spiritual leaders are combining their efforts now because this is soul work. Right, Mandy? Our society has tried to make sickness and death go away, less visible. Our world promotes models and youth and health. I work with a 22-year-old who is just panicking now. She's a performer and she says, my window of opportunity is closed and I'm 22. A part of us is aging and, dare I say, dying every day. There really is no anti-aging formula. So what is the formula to living with this for surviving? What is the good news? The good news is that God speaks to us and he takes care of us in a language of compassion. Our hope and our help comes from compassion. Really? That's all I got for you? Does that feel like it's going to land in your pain? Does that feel like that's going to make up for all the losses you have? I don't want you to leave here today with just another memory verse that you tuck away in that box of cliches, the important ones, that all things work for God's good and glory. I want this to land somewhere where you can use it. So I will share with you how people like me and David and Abraham and Paul, how we've lived through to live differently. And in that difference, we feel better in every way. I want you to consider compassion for the first time, or again, or again for the first time. Because this is our good news. This is what we stake our faith on, that God lives with us, with us, in our pain, in our aging, in our dying. And when we are with God, we are renewed with strength in a very real, real and tangible way. This isn't just a distant scripture. It's real. God's compassion is real. It's a love language. Remember Psalm 86. You, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God. We learn so many attributes of God. Have you focused on compassion? He is a compassionate God. What do you need when you're sick, when you're growing old, when you're dying? You need compassion. But I know it may not feel like enough in the moment of pain. I know you live with pain. Does it help if I say, well, can you feel God's compassion? Pain is such a bully. It blocks out compassion. Asking people to use compassion is a lot like reminding people that they have to breathe. 
Breathing is very popular right now. Ian Cron started a Lent service by saying, I want you all to breathe, right? It's part of all of our practices. It's grounding. My mom just had open heart surgery, and I heard over and over every PT, every OT session, Mary, breathe, breathe. Why do we have to be reminded to do something that should be automatic? It's because it's not automatically chosen. Just like compassion, we have to be reminded to do it. We have to feel that it's important. We have to do it even though we are in pain. And we need testimony that it works. Sometimes we wait thinking that there's better technology or more sophisticated ways to get into our pain. I'm here to tell you that this was the first and the best that God gave us. I love the book of Psalms. I love David. I think it's because it's filled with his testimony, crying out to God. David is my, my champion, my role model for physical and emotional breakdowns. Oh God, my God, he cries out over and over again in his pain. He doesn't deny his pain. He doesn't pretend to be invincible, impervious. He doesn't run and deny that there is the threat of death. He isn't too spiritual to say, help. And I'm so glad that he does it for us in this book because this is our example of how getting help begins. Now, we don't all write a book saying help, but however you say it, this is where it begins. We begin to heal when we cry out. I don't know what your loss is. I know many of your stories. But the help begins in the crying out. And how you cry out is going to be different for you all. But that's when you will begin to feel better. And here's why. Imagine a child running with a cut on their elbow, sprained wrist, and they keep running, and they don't tell you that they're hurting. And so you don't have a chance to put a bandaid on it or maybe a bandage around their wrist. If you did, they would be able to better go on, get up, be stronger, less pain, and play. Now, Jesus knows our pain, so why should we have to tell him? Because until we stop and open up our lives to him, we might just be running right past that cure. Like the child who keeps running, a parent can run after them, chasing them down with a bandit, but if they don't stop and say, here it is, Please, I need that help. I need that bandage. I need that strength. You probably have friends or family, and they're running with their pain. And you're thinking, if you would just stop, I could help you. But you don't. That's what it's like with God. He's there with the cure. He's there with the comfort. But we don't stop to receive what he has. Help from God might be very tangible. It might come in the form of congregational care, a grace over it might be medical solutions. It might be very tangible. Or it might be intangible. It might be the very mystical but real presence of God. There's a reason we feel better when we are in the presence of people. From the moment we were created, we were told it's not good to be alone. We are created for relationship. Babies don't thrive if they are not held. Lives are cut short if they're lived out alone. And the worst punishment that you can give someone in captivity is to sentence them to solitary confinement. 
Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway was so threatened by isolation that he made best friends with what? The soccer ball. It is not good that we're alone. And pain and suffering and dying and getting old in so many ways, it isolates us. It makes us feel alone. There have been times, even when I was surrounded by the loving friends and my family, that I felt very alone in my pain. When I was six, I was in a coma, not expected to come out of it. I've had cancer. I've had treatments around the world. I've had six surgeries, three heart attacks, and amputations. I knew I lost my hair, but I really didn't realize what else I had lost. I was going through that, that decade where I was tough. I could take anything. I would tell people, don't worry about it. I could handle it. I'm good. I was being an inspiration to people because people were saying, you're such an inspiration, so I'd better be. I was never able to see and feel what I lost because I was so distracted, so defensive about what I was enduring. I didn't grieve because I didn't know that what I had really lost were my relationships, my self-esteem, my security, my confidence. I could go on and on. Then one cold November night, I quite literally ended up on the edge of a dark, cold Lake Michigan. I heard an old, familiar Amy Grant song come on. In a little while, we'll be with the Father. In a little while, we'll be home forever. Oh, I just wanted to be home. Didn't want to die, but I really didn't know what it would be like to live anymore. I felt so alone. And I was surrounded by people and family. I didn't know then what I know now. That being home is being wherever God is. And my home then and now is right where I am because home is with God and God is here. And God is here with his love and his compassion and that is my home. I thought it was at my end until I began to cry out. But see, I hadn't cried out because I wasn't paying attention to my pain. So it's kind of which comes first. When I gave myself the outlet to cry out, I opened myself up to the pain. When I felt the pain, I couldn't help but cry out and say, help me. My crying and calling out was my searching for the presence. You see the pathway? I felt the pain because I was starting to understand the loss. The pain made me cry out. The crying out put me in God's presence, made me aware of God's presence. I said, my God, my God, like David running through the desert, where are you? Didn't you promise me that I would be king? And in this pasture, with my arms open wide and my heart open wider, there was nothing in between me and God. In this pasture, I couldn't hold all those defenses and all those distractions anymore. And in this pasture, I could only receive. And I received compassion. I heard God say, I believe you. It's such a big part of being sick and growing old. I know it hurts. I heard God say in the voice of compassion, it's too much for you. Give it to me. Let me hold some of your pain. Let me carry some of it so that you can carry on, so that you can carry new dreams and you'll be king a little differently than you had planned, than what you thought was best. But oh, it will be blessed. 
The presence of God is the beginning because that's where we find compassion. We don't stay there in our pain, but we receive compassion, right? That now we can go on because we are freed up from that which was tethering us to all those distractions and losses. So grief work, there's the classic grief work, but there's so much more to that. Our grief work begins by acknowledging, figuring out, what am I really losing here? And being open to the pain, which we're very good at denying and covering up. And in that opening, you can't help but ask for help. If you don't ask for help, I wonder, are you really in touch with your pain? In calling out for help, we find God's presence. And here's the big part. Be in that presence. Don't just run away from it. Be in that presence. And God's presence may look very different for you. It may be in nature. It may be in music. It may be in a baby. You may see the face of God in the face of a four-year-old at the Hobby Lobby. When you do, lay down that burden, and in this posture, receive what God has to give you. Now, people stop there, and they say, well, this ain't working. That's not the end game. You receive the compassion because that is what activates you being able to get up and go on because you're not caring so much of it anymore. We don't become broken to stay broken, but so that we can begin the repair. I'm not asking you to accept Parkinson's or cancer or even getting old if you don't want to. I'm asking you to understand and accept that we have to adjust to different losses continually. I'm asking you to accept your pain, not to stay there, but so that you know what it is you need to give up. What often happens when we're confronted with our pain and our illness is that we feel so uncomfortable that we bury any of our thoughts about it, or we go the other direction and we catastrophize it. Over thinking it or feeling it and under-catastrophizing it with bravado, in those stages, we don't recognize that what we really need is compassion. Sickness and dying isn't usually our choice. Of course it's not. Some make meaning out of it and live beautiful lives. But we like to control how we're going to grow old and how we're going to die. I think one of the things that bothered me the most, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right out loud, um, it bothered me a lot when I flatlined last year, was that the last thing I said to my sweet husband was, thanks for coming, can you bring me a Diet Coke tomorrow? And then, that was it. When I came to, I thought, this is not how I want my death to look. Right, we want to control it a little bit. We wanted to play out the way I had imagined. In my mind, I was going to have shepherds of angels singing me in. My Angela was going to be over here reading me poetry. I had this beautiful last scene instead. We can't control how we die, how we grow old. We try to. The only thing we can control is not letting it control us. But there's very few lessons that were taught about goodbyes, about exits. 
There's tons of courses and business launches and how to start your family, how to start your marriage. We applaud entrepreneurial beginnings. In contrast, goodbyes are not taught. They're ignored. We don't know how to say a good goodbye. And it's troubling for me because the norm of our life is saying goodbye. Life is continually a series of letting go. But Stan reminded me last Wednesday that even though I miss my 25-year-old body, I would rather have my 55-year-old spirit. We are forever living in this tension of staying put and moving, of living and dying. So what does a good goodbye look like when you are saying goodbye every day to your youth and perhaps to your health and, dare I say, to this earth? It says, I'm going to make meaning out of this. And I will not be controlled by yesterday and the if-onlys. As our health and our youth transforms, we hope for the best. My mother has taught me that. And you wonder, where is God in all of this? He is there and he is here saying, they're there. I believe in healing and cures and all kinds of medicine. And when people say to me, I'm praying for your healing, I say, thank you. And I believe that I am healed every day, moment by moment, because of the compassion that I receive from God, and often through you. Does compassion emerge naturally in us? Do we have to learn it? Is it just for desperate times? Why are some people so sincere and sensitive, and others seemingly even cold-hearted? One thing I'm sure of, the practice of compassion is to uncover your fears, which will reveal the scariest thoughts of, what if that was happening to me? Or worse, I can't believe this is happening to me. Lest you think this is too hard, though, I remind you that compassion is guided and provided by God. I know that compassion is the last state we want to visit when we are in pain, because pain pushes it away. Pain is so selfish. It's, it wants to be seen and nothing else. I know that we don't have to completely know what we're doing in order to be compassionate, because it's guided and provided by God. I think about those who were in the presence of God, and he said, when I was sick, you took care of me. And they said, when? When did we do this? Imagine what we can do if we do so intentionally. But it's so daunting. It's so daunting to be in another's life. And I think that's because we're confused about just being compassionate versus fixing them. Oh, we want to fix them, don't we? Especially when they're not living their life the way we think it should be done. But the good news suggests a whole new fo focus, just to suffer with them. Suffer with yourself. Be in that compassionate state. The voices in our head say, tough it out. Don't think about it. But the voice of truth says, they're there. Compassion says to the one hurting, let me hold this for you. It's too much. Let me take it from you so that you are energized and activated to go on. Compassion doesn't say, I'm going to fix this for you. Compassion doesn't lead. It follows. It keeps you from being in isolation. And that one giving compassion, it might be God. It might be in the privacy of your spiritual work. 
It might be in a group. You've got to find out how to be in the presence of God's compassion. Because fear tells us, run. And compassion says, come closer. But we're so afraid to be in compassion because we're afraid we're going to get sucked into other people's suffering. It's more than a part of our Christian practice. Compassion is our entire practice. It's loving others as yourself. Oh, there's the problem. It's hard to love ourselves, isn't it? Hmm. This doesn't happen well if we don't know how to sit in our own suffering. And so much of the world tells us to bury our suffering, that we're not very comfortable in it. We can't, when we can't be comfortable in our own suffering, we will never be able to be close to somebody else's. And therein, we stop being compassionate and we start fixing again. To the Corinthians, Paul described God as the father of compassion. We read, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble. Mm. Without compassion, it's not only our own lives that are destroyed, but entire worlds crumble without compassion because the opposite of compassion is indifference and it's abandonment. The opposite of compassion is that they are not like me, as seen in Holocaust. And closer to home, it is seen when we walk past the nursing homes, when we turn away from those who are disfigured and crippled, because we can't find our lives in theirs or their life in ours. We say, they're not like me. And compassion says, I am with you in this. Only compassion has healed the world's greatest atrocities. We don't let our suffering into our lives if we can help it. I mean, not into our deep inner lives. Our busy worlds have such a grasp on us, telling us that we should stay away if we can. It's so hard to make it personal, this mysterious event of our life. But I think that more and more in this community, we want to understand our losses and be there for others of which our tears remind us. I've been wondering, as I think about a lot of your stories, do you think that time heals the pain of sickness and dying? John, does pain help? Does time help heal the pain of losing your father? Not the way we want it to. The pain changes but I don't think it ever really completely disappears over time. Because I think that when we lose someone that we love, or when we lose a part of us that we love so much, sometimes as days stack up, we just are continually reminded of all that we lost. The pain changes, but real love does not know the full separation through time, centuries, or even this physical earth. And yet, we push away that pain, of course. And I think it's really important that even when we're young and healthy, we consider this study on our mortality. Because if we don't know the mountaintops and the valleys, we don't really have a full life. Sickness, death, and growing old, it invites us to consider all of life again. In Lent, we experience a slow discovery of our mortality so that we appreciate life without clinging to it desperately. 
I want you to reconsider the idea of loss as a surrender, and a surrender as a kind of powerlessness in which we have no choice but to be God-guided. Now, if I've given you the impression that growing old or sickness or dying is to be welcomed, I do not mean that at all. Let me make it clear, I don't think so. Death and sickness and even growing old is something that we can protest with all of our might because it's the opposite of survival. Even Christ didn't want to die, and he knew the purpose for his death. We know he was in agony. We know that his sweat felt like, felt like blood. He cried out in pain. Let that remove any romantic illusions of dying. I've come to realize that death and sickness doesn't belong to God. In God, there is no death. God is the God of life. And we godly people feel the pain acutely because we are so alive in God. I was troubled when people say to me, if you really believe, you will not mourn their death. It is because I really believe that I protest because I celebrate life because I am alive in God who is a God of life. This is the miracle of Easter for me, that Jesus knew the full absurdity of death and he threw it off in his resurrection and he died as all men will and then said, in my end is my beginning. And he who was seated at the throne said, behold, I am making all people, all things new. Second John reminds us, as you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I have a very, very good friend who wrote the following song, We'll Walk With You. It won award after award for the hit series Touched by an Angel a long time ago. When Mark wrote this song, he was, had been born into a very complicated family. He was not a believer. He didn't have any faith at the time when he wrote that song. I believe when Mark is before God, God will say, when I was sick, you comforted me. And he will say, when? When did I do this? We don't always have to know what we're doing in order to be compassionate. What we have to do is be in God's presence. So the takeaway today is, how and with whom will you find God's presence? It may be different from all of us, but I invite you to stay there, to be there, so that you can give God your pain. And you will be open-handed and open-hearted to go on different and better. Walk with God. He's there with compassion.